Welcome to Music and the Church, a podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, and I'm the Minister of Music at the First Congregational Church of St. Louis. Today's show features not one, not two, but three guests. Our guests are Monique Ingalls, Muriel schweighausen hegersberg and Zoe Sherinian. They co-edited the book, Making Congregational Music Local in Christian Communities Worldwide. This collection was published earlier this year, and it's a collection of about a dozen essays about congregational music and what it means to be local in today's Christian communities. I'm going to let Monique, Muriel, and Zoe introduce themselves, and throughout our conversation, I'll be dropping in to identify who is speaking. One more thing before we get into the interview. This is the last episode of Music and the Church for 2018. I'll be taking a break for the holidays and we'll have new episodes ready in January. I hope it is a wonderful season for you. My name is Monique Ingalls, and um, I'm assistant professor of music at Baylor University, where I teach church music cor- courses from um, an ethnomusicological perspective. Most of my work um, to this point has focused on um, North American evangelical Christianity, and I have a new project I'm very excited about looking at how British gospel choirs kind of encourage the creation of convivial relations between ethnic and, uh, and racial and and religious groups in the UK. So I'm Muriel Zweighuizen-Reigersberg. I'm based at the University of Sydney Paradisic, where I'm an affiliate at the Conservatorium of Music. My background is an applied ethnomusicologist uh, in music health and well-being, as well as on Indigenous Aboriginal Australia. Hello, I'm uh, Zoe Sherinian. I'm a professor of ethnomusicology and chair of the division at the University of Oklahoma, where I teach both undergraduate and graduate courses. And my specialty is the music of South India. And I'm also a documentary filmmaker. I've been working on with both Protestant and Catholic communities of untouchables and their use of the untouchable drum called the parai in their efforts to liberate themselves from caste discrimination. Let's start with a snapshot of the collection. And Monique, do you want to tell us about the big picture here? Sure, absolutely. So in thinking about, we went round and round with what we were going to call the book. I don't know if you all remember all of the discussions about, you know, what the best title is. You know, we could have called it, you know, we ended up with making congregational music local, but we could have just as easily called it, you know, making the local through congregational music. So those were kind of the the two processes that happen simultaneously that the book talks about. So we talk about how Christian communities go about making congregational music locally meaningful and useful. But then we also talk about how Christian communities use congregational music to define what the local means in the first place and the ways that they use music to position themselves relative to other communities, whether those are, um, you know, other religious communities in their vicinity or other, you know, national or, you know, transnational denominations Um, those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, the way we explain it in the introduction is that music is a means of local and global positioning for Christian communities kind of the world over. So for the church musicians and the pastors who listen to the show, what it seems like you're saying is that everyone who's active in music in a church is creating this no matter where they are. It's not just about like 
oh, in that country over there or in that city over there, it's like, here's what you're actually doing in your church. And here's a way of understanding how you do what you do and how this other church does what they do. Exactly. And that grew out of, you know, so uh, we were really pleased, you know, as editors that we managed to get, you know, examples from all six continents here. So, you know, we've got from Catholic Christians in Indonesia to Aboriginal Australian Pentecostals, multi-ethnic Lutheran congregation in South Africa and um, white mainline Protestants in, um, in Nashville. And so really, I think the, you know, the diversity of case studies our ideas about these processes really grew from the material. It was one of those where it was, you know, we had some topics and themes we wanted to explore. We didn't, you know, as so many, you know, edited volumes in our field go, we didn't quite know what was, we we had faith that something was going to connect them when we got done with things, but really our theory of musical localization and how music makes the local and yet the local you know, in in flex, you know, itself upon music. All of that grew from our contributors' case studies. Next, Muriel and then Zoe add to Monique's overview of the book. I think we were also very keen to sort of, um, I guess, in true academic style, explore how music not just unifies, but also diversifies, and in some cases, divides communities. Um, And we wanted to compare and contrast that with some of the narratives um, around Christianity, where there is this you know, we are all one big family in Christ, but at the same time, we're also very different. And at what point is that an acceptable thing to be? And at what point is that okay? And what role does music play in shaping those debates and, and conversations worldwide? Uh, another thing we really wanted to introduce into the field, which hasn't really been done as much, is the idea that, uh, you know, it's it's not just the Western people shaping or having introduced Christianity locally, it's also the local people now being third, fourth, whatever generation Christians doing that for themselves. And we were wanting to move away from the narrative which suggests that it's purely imported. So this act mm-hmm. of, of agency, this agency and this act of shaping is very much a local thing nowadays. So it's localizing the practice as well and to give people that you know, opportunity to speak for themselves because we do have one or two folks who as well as being uh, academics are local and indigenous to that community that they're researching. I'd like to just reiterate that as well, that so much of this work is about giving a forum for the agency of Christians worldwide, the local people, and what they understand as as meaningful, what they understand as Christian, and that you end up with many Christianities through music. Back to Muriel. And I think that's important. And in that respect, I think we tie in nicely with some of the other strands that are occurring in, for example, world Christianities and missionization uh, studies, as well as uh, the anthropology of Christianity, where people have come to the realization that, yes, you know, it isn't just something that was imposed. It's now something that people have adopted and, and, you know, are valid conceptions of Christianity in and of themselves. So that was a really interesting side of the debate and the discussions we had as authors as well. Back to Zoe. And you can see this in other sort of globalized practices if you just, and this is why where this theory that is sort of forming from the ground up from these local case studies, you could see it also with popular music, you know, this idea, idea that somehow, you know, rock and roll has been imposed from the commercial West onto all mm-hmm. these other cultures, as opposed to seeing how specific cultures have taken rock and roll and made it their own and you know made something you know really very new so this is where the 
I mean, I really appreciated what Monique said as, you know, really what we're doing is we didn't know what was going to come out of this collection. And it's really sort of theory from below or theory that this concept of localization really challenging previous ways of thinking based on these really contemporary case studies. So we're going to get into those different older ways of thinking. Uh, I'll just briefly say where you were talking about enculturation and contextualization and indigenization, which uh, some of our listeners have probably heard, maybe if they're Catholic or Protestant, um, may have heard that used in their own churches and their own theologians in their churches. But before we get into that, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how you as scholars are approaching your topic, because all scholars connect their own personal beliefs to their work, but not all scholars make that explicit. Um, and I, I guess I'm saying my belief here is that all scholars do do this. I know not everyone believes that, but I think we all make our own beliefs evident in our work, whether we make it explicit or not. And y'all have made that explicit. So I was wondering if you could briefly talk about where you're coming from as scholars and as, you know, as people in editing this collection. First up, Monique. Absolutely. Well, I just, just to, you know, to start out, one of the things that really brought this to the fore, and we do, we reflect about this in our co-written introduction, is, uh, is the choice of what hymn or what congregational song we were going to use at the beginning. And I think I was the one that proposed, I don't even remember what I proposed, you know, to, to begin with, but it was, it was met with some consternation and, uh, and a really productive discussion, a, a a dialogue emerged that um, I learned a lot of new things in the in the process, and um, you know we eventually settled on a different example that Muriel frames so nicely through um, some of her own work with Aboriginal peoples. And I found this really interesting chat forum, you know, where people were uh, were talking about the the hymn people. Uh, mainly, it was you know largely Sub-Saharan Africa and. Um, and East Asia, uh, East and Southeast Asia, that uh, people were engaging with um, the hymn Rock of Ages online, and um, you know, getting a window into into people's experiences or the you know the narratives that they're they're telling about their lives through engagement with this mission hymn. But as far as how our how our subject positions you know play into things. Most of my work, you know, to this point has been on contemporary worship music in evangelical churches. I come from an evangelical background, you know, through my 20s was kind of one of those, you know, what has been called an evangelical on the Canterbury Trail. So I'm now an Episcopalian, uh, but I teach at a Baptist university. And <laughs> so... But you're, you're a practicing Christian. That's right. And, that's right. And have experience as a musician yourself. Yes. Next up, Muriel. So I am, I'm not religious, not a Christian, uh, a respectful atheist, I hope. <laughs> uh, I come at this because I am an applied researcher as well, uh, meaning that I use my, my musical practice in choral facilitation as a means of finding out new information uh, about what people do and how music socially constructs particular beliefs and ways of uh, being in the world. And so through facilitating an Australian Aboriginal choir, uh, it turned out that people actually uh, wanted me to uh, facilitate a Christian choir. I had initially gone over there with an open mind to say, you know, I'll facilitate any kind of choir. Uh, but as it turned out, the folks there said, look, you know, we really would like you to do the church choir thing. And I said, really? Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, I'm not religious. So how does that work? <laughs> 
but in the end, I decided if my project was going to be beneficial for the local community and a reciprocal arrangement, as I had initially intended for ethical reasons, I thought I really should go with their wishes, which is to reinvigorate some of the local Christian repertoire that they had loved so much over a generation, third generation. Um, that to me as an atheist was uh, challenging because obviously not being schooled in, in uh, hymnody or anything, it was a, a learning curve for me. You know, none of them were readers of music either. So I had to learn all voice parts by heart for them and then teach them by rote to the, uh, to the singers. And uh, once I started doing that and having rehearsals in church, uh, people started coming to the choir and uh, it kind of snowballed from there. And that to me was, I guess, a defining moment in the sense that my views and attitudes towards people of religion changed dramatically in the sense that I became far more accepting and open. But then I subsequently discovered that the academy wasn't so accepting and open about religious topics and that I had to be very careful how I frame things and uh, I had to systematically identify myself as being an atheist. Otherwise, um, in some cases, the work that I was doing was met with open derision. And I felt it was time to speak out against that because I think uh, Christian musics are everywhere. There is a lot of agency uh, out there and we ought to acknowledge that and not you know, stick it under, uh, stick our heads in the sand and ignore it because to me that would be bad scholarship. So uh, I was very pleased to be invited by Monique to uh, help co-edit the volume. Because I think there are valuable things that we can do through collaboration, uh, you know, both people of faith and non-faith. <laughs> and now Zoe. I grew up uh, an Episcopalian, pretty involved in church. Um, my mother went to seminary and she was really big on saints days and, and serving food, food that coordinated with saints days. And, and it was in some ways very kind of Catholic in that uh, way. My little but, boy's going to grow up and say that about me. <laughs> 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 so, um, but it wasn't, you know, I never really, I was actually an acolyte as a kid, but I was never moved by a sermon. And then, so I went to India just after college and ended up working at a, a Christian women's college and was conducting a choir and that kind of thing. And just noticed that the Christians at this college were singing indigenous hymnody. And it ended up that that was very old. It was over about 200 years old, this, this repertoire of hymnody, this canon, really. And I just knew it was there. And when I went to graduate school after that, uh, I thought, you know, this is something that really hasn't been studied. And so it's mostly my, my background and my mother's interest in, in these kinds of relationships between Christianity and culture that just sort of encouraged me to, to follow this. So I ended up doing, for my dissertation, uh, a study of Protestant seminary and their production of music. And I went into it with a background in Indian classical music, Carnatic music, and was really kind of looking for that, at that canon of repertoire that was in Carnatic style. So and this is a Protestant so seminary in India? In South India, in the city of Madurai, it's called the Tamil Nadu Theological Seminary. And it's a very progressive seminary. And when I got there, I found that the thing that was really happening was liberation theology in, in these local terms called Dalit theology. So, so theology of the most oppressed caste people, people that, that are at the bottom of the caste system. And, and there was one composer there who was writing in folk music style. And I was both attracted to that theology and to the musical style much more than the classical 
music and this is classical Indian. And so I just, the field situation moved me towards that. And it was a real kind of dialogical engagement with this one composer as well as his students. And, and so for me, you know, most of my work has ended up being on issues of identity in relationship to music and in this context, particularly caste as well as class and gender. And, and it's just, you know, this is who I am. Most of, you know, who I am has been working for the oppressed and, you know, the underdog in cultural situations. And so, you know, I come to this project looking, really trying to, again, assert the agency of the people in, in relationship to these colonial powers and, and recognizing that they have always had agency that at least in these contexts, there have never been um, the imposition of Christianity. Uh, it's always been a negotiation between missionaries and local Christians. And music gets as part of that that negotiating process. So, so much of my work has been around really understanding the liberating text, the gospel as a liberating text, um, the liberating mission, message within Christianity. And I, I didn't know that message at all until <laughs> I went to Tamil Nadu, until I went to India and heard it from the perspective of these people. And then in turn, the musical style of folk music is a liberating style. And it was not always accepted by the missionaries, um, by the upper caste Christians. And it's been really <laughs> levels of indigenization, so, you know, processes of indigenization that have happened over the course of 300, 400 years of Christianity in India. So I'm also interested, interested in that historical continuum of change locally after, you know, decades after missionaries have left what's going on between local identity groups and the continuing development of a local Christian music and identity. Here's Muriel picking up on indigenization. I think it's an important point you raise because um, certainly in Indigenous Australia, there are some interesting, um, I guess, theories around homogenization when it comes to, um, you know, Indigenous diversity. And what I found is that the Christian communities within Australia are very different. Uh, Those in the Northern Territory among the Yongwu have managed to retain a lot of their traditional practices and therefore are able to include them in their uh, local musical Christian worship practices too. Uh, whereas where the community I work with in Hope Vale hasn't been able to do that for various historical reasons. And I would recommend for any practitioners who actually go out there to to try and inform themselves about the local histories and to what extent people are comfortable using those traditions. Because uh, one of my concerns has been in the past where I've looked at, I guess, practitioner, uh, you know, handbooks and things that there is a certain amount of essentializing that is to say, oh, these people are Indian, so therefore they do A, B, and C, or these people are Australian Aboriginal, so therefore they think like this. It's not mm-hmm. quite the case. You know, Indigenous people are also very different, yeah. and, uh, and we mustn't make assumptions. And that's one of the things that struck me, the differences that exist even within Australia alone, in a continent as big as India, probably too. And now Monique continues. Absolutely. And, and one thing that that also um, brings to mind is just like we can't 
you know, just like it, we can't essentialize, um, you know, these characteristics of, you know, of entire communities. Also, um, sometimes it's difficult to predict um, what's going to happen when a local community comes in contact with a form of, you know, of Christian music from the outside, you know, to, so to give one example from our volume, you know, that I found fascinating, one of our authors writes about Aboriginal Australian Pentecostals who encounter, you know, who have, you know, all mobile phones and they're listening to YouTube and this music that's, you know, coming from the music that I study, you know, that is um, uh, coming from Nashville and other um, Anglophone kind of centers of production, Christian commercial congregational music and is talking about, um, you know, whereas sometimes we assume, oh no, you know, if, if, if the music, you know, we're kind of sending music like um, through a fire hose and, um, you know, and people are just, you know, accepting it as it comes. But she talks about, you know, how this one Aboriginal man uh, was inspired, had a dream after um, listening to a particular Chris Tomlin song, you know, famous, you know, well-known um, worship leader from the, from the U.S who sings in this pop rock style. And in the dream, God told this person that um, they needed to incorporate more, you know, more local styles. They needed to incorporate didgeridoo and clapsticks. So yeah, kind of an, an un, unpredictable um, result of contact of different, from different Christian communities. I want to add something that's a little bit on the flip side, because y'all are talking so much about music from the outside coming in and um, researchers not thinking that a whole group is homogenous. And Mm -hmm. on the flip side of this, in in my work as a church musician, I've noticed that churches, people in churches will often think that whatever their local congregation does is the way that churches do it. And they might know (laughs) that like a different denomination does it differently, but they think, well, like, Mm -hmm. well, all the United Methodist churches do it this way, right? Or all the Catholic Mm -hmm. churches do it this way, like whatever their idiosyncrasies are. So it's it's that back and forth. Mm -hmm. Well, well, what we do is the normal way, right? (laughs) (laughs) Here's Zoe responding to my comment about churches and their idiosyncrasies. But I think that's also based sometimes on this idea that a lot of people think that that there is only one kind of Christianity and thus there is only one kind of Christian worship and mm-hmm. just this sort of assumption. And, and, and so I think partly what our book helps do is really kind of explode that idea. Um, um, and yeah, and, and also just in general, I think the idea that there are on in each local context, local area, there are different kinds of people, first of all. There are local mm-hmm. identity differences and and we can't essentialize about those people. So each group of people or you know, even key individuals are gonna bring different things to that type of expression, congregational expression. So this is, I think, why our term localization really works better. It's much more of an umbrella term that allows, it's trying to account for diversity of musics and identities on the ground. And, and whereas these other terms were really too limiting. Let's talk about terms that we've been dancing around so far. Enculturation, contextualization, and indigenization, which also carries with it the opposite, assimilation. These terms have some denominational histories as well as disciplinary ones. Here's Muriel explaining how these terms relate to various fields of academic study. And then Monique continues by talking about how she and Muriel and Zoe explored beyond their home disciplines as they were working with these terms. A lot of the terms used in denominations actually come from scholarship 
interestingly enough, but they are applied in different ways across different sectors and belief systems. So that's the interesting thing that we discovered and some of the things we had to upschool ourselves in as well, because I ended up reading a lot of uh, theological literature, for example. (laughs) (laughs) We did. And so, you know, with some fear and trepidation, you know, again, um, going going beyond our... um, ethnomusicological circles, you know, we realized, okay, these are terms, and, and these are terms that not only, you know, scholars um, in, you know, North America or Europe or whatever else are using, these have been, um, you know, captured by and used by and found useful by, um, you know, local peoples throughout throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, so in culturation, I mean, some of our chapters, you know, use these terms because these are the terms that the people that they're studying, Catholics in, uh, in Indonesia, this is an enculturation project, uh, mm-hmm. how they imagine it. But, uh, you know, in coming up with a model of musical localization, we considered enculturation, contextualization, you know, as uh, Muriel mentioned, we got into, read some Ansgar Chapunko, who has a really helpful breakdown. He's a um, Filipino Catholic priest who has a helpful breakdown of a lot of these terms and their resonances within particularly Catholic theological discussions of the kind of the latter quarter of the 20th century to the present. And enculturation and contextualization, very similar. Um, Enculturation is kind of the preferred term for Catholics, although some Protestants use it too, so there's some crossing of boundaries, but it describes basically the relationship between Christian faith and local culture. And contextualization tries to do the same thing. It became, um, for various reasons, more the preferred Protestant term for the process. And because one of the things that we flag up is because of, you know, some of the basic (laughs) ecclesial differences between um, Catholics and Protestants, they have different resonances when it comes to what the presumed source of authority is. So a lot of times within culturation, you're presuming um, the authority of a church institution, you know, kind of to, to hierarchically or in dialogue with, you know, kind of levels of its hierarchy to make decisions for, you know, what counts as Christian and what counts as local culture, you know, for people on the ground. Whereas contextualization often emphasizes the authority of certain interpretations of scripture and where you, you know, kind of get get into it with um, with Protestants is, you know, usually that that particular interpretation of scripture is coming from Western missionaries or North North American churches. Oftentimes, there's an imposition. My understanding, and I'm wondering if this is correct, is that both of these terms have an understanding of like putting a lens onto a local culture that is a particularly quote unquote Christian, and saying, well, what can we keep, and what do we have to get rid of? Here's Muriel responding to my question. I think that's where where the tension often lies. It's, uh, you know, who is that decision-making authority and and on what basis do they make that decision? You know, obviously with the Catholic Church, which is enormously hierarchical, uh, there there are, you know, if you look at some of the Vatican II stuff, uh, there are different different guidelines uh, as to who you should be approaching in order to get yourself uh, approved, as it were, for a particular change. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, in, in, in other contexts, it's perhaps less hierarchical and more localized. But there, at some point, has to be a decision as to what counts and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's musically the interesting thing, because I very much suspect that it does depend on who locally uh, has, a, you know, I guess a forward-thinking attitude and who perhaps is a little bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. And what I found surprising as an atheist was that it wasn't often necessarily the local clergy who were white and male, <laughs> 
uh, that were the conservative ones. It was in fact the local people who were extremely conservative about the kinds of music they would allow into their church. Um, and so that's where I guess the theories around indigenization and, and contextualization become very interesting because, you know, who makes those decisions and why? And perhaps our expectations there as scholars need to be modified because often uh, it's, it's contrary to what we expect. We somehow think that because, you know, oh gosh, this was imposed, it was a colonial exercise, people must be really wanting to indigenize and get back to their roots and whatever. In fact, sometimes the opposite is true. And again, thinking about that and having those conversations with people locally is really key when you are a practitioner before you jump in and, and make musical changes. And now Zoe continuing the conversation. So, so the first overarching thing to keep in mind with uh, that, that I think both Muriel and Monique are bringing out is that all of these terms, and there are lots of them, there's also you know, assimilation and acculturation, all of these terms reflect processes of culture context and power dynamics. So who is making, who is the authority, who are making the decisions, who are the key players, um, culture brokers, for example. So it, within each case, we need to look at the, those dynamics and understand, you know, is, is there colonialism involved? Um, are there local people who are oppressed by other local people, like in the Indian caste system? And so, for example, are, are um, middle caste people trying to, in a way, challenge the cultural hegemony of other, uh, of higher caste people in their connecting with, with um, European colonialists and the religion of those people, right? So are they rejecting some of their own local things and taking on four part hymnody in order to be closer to the colonial power um, instead of being oppressed by the Brahmins, these kinds of issues. So um, if we want to, I don't know if we want to talk any more about these, the terms enculturation, um, but, but I think one of the most interesting ideas here was, was the idea of that, that you're simply kind of translating Christianity as a universalist concept into a local idiom. So the idea is that you're changing the local as opposed to potentially changing Christianity. So this idea that the local culture gets transformed by this timeless and unchanging gospel, as opposed to the gospel or, the, or gospel hermeneutics interpretation getting transformed by, the, by local cultural values. And so that was one of the limitations of this concept of enculturation this really top-down authority from the Catholic Church. And, but that didn't then actually reflect so many of these case studies where you see, you know, Catholics are on the ground, are actually doing what they want on some level. Um, and maybe outside of the, the official church context, whether it's in, in among lay communities or shrine worship or, or you've got a kind of rogue priest who's allowing for these things. So we, again, we need a term that allows for all of this kind of, these dynamics. So that's where localization comes in. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Here's Muriel on localization. It's less politically laden and I guess suggests that there might be multiple, I guess, power structures and relationships at hand that will help define what is made local. And that may include some authority from, from the church, whatever that means in, in a denomination, but it also includes, and, and this is a 
again, the point we make about indigenous agency and them making their own decisions and somehow influencing what happens. Because, of course, it's not just something where they sit and go, well, all right, then let's do it this way because the pastor says, uh, you know, there are elements of resistance. And again, this idea that music both unifies and sometimes divides. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's important to acknowledge. As I read Making Congregational Music Local in Christian Communities Worldwide, what really struck me was the emphasis on relationships. Relationships with the past, with the future, with other local churches, with other churches outside the local. It's all based on a local congregation's relationships with other Christians. Here's Monique elaborating on that and explaining how the chapters of the book came together. Absolutely. And that's the way that we, um, you know, as that we went through several possible, you know, ways of organizing, you know, the chapters that you know, shifted and changed over time. But eventually, we did end up on a rubric that's completely, as you say, you know, based in relationship, you know, so the first um, set of essays really examines how the relationship with the past, and how Christians, you know, use and select, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's a very selective, you know, use of very particular uh, materials from the past to help them produce a sense of the local. And then the second section looks at power structures, you know, whether that's uh, national government or denominational bodies or the Christian commercial music industry and the way that those shape how people make congregational music local. And then the third one looks at... um, circumstances that Christians face in areas that are characterized already by a lot of um, ethnic or religious diversity. So how do they position themselves? How do Christians position themselves relative to Hindu, um, you know, neighbors, for instance, in in, um, Indonesia? Or how do they in places where there are a plethora of denominations, you know, how do, um, how do those use music to, uh, to position themselves locally? And then finally, we look at um, kind of a more macro level relation of how ideas of race and nation um, complicate and inform the process um, whereby people make music local. And now Muriel brings us back to talking about indigenization. I think uh, indigenization is a challenging one as well. I think certainly one of our authors feels strongly about it being quite top down and perhaps still run by authorities who are not necessarily in in keeping with some of the um, uh, inequalities that are faced in certainly the African context. And um, in the Australian context, again, there is this idea that, um, you know, indigenization can mean many things depending on where you're based. Uh, And we shouldn't assume, again, that every every group of people that we deal with have an homogenous or, or, you know, a similar culture. Um, I think a lot of groups, when they work with indigenizing uh, strategies, uh, particularly when it's arts in the community and so on, uh, they have to be quite careful uh, as to what they introduce and don't introduce. You know, for example, in some context in Africa, you know, the, the, the use of the drum may not be acceptable because it's associated with spiritual saints that were, you know, related to the older religion that people are trying to get away from and musically. Conversely, though, if we look at the modern African churches, they are precisely trying to reintroduce that because of those reasons. And then we get into debates again as to, you know, what counts as real Christianity and what doesn't and what actually is indigenization and why. Uh, So as an atheist, I find that fascinating because obviously not being a Christian, I don't really have any particular preference about what Christianity ought to look like. (laughs) And like, it's you know, I don't mind, you you decide. Uh, But I suspect that for those who you know, have a faith and are Christian, they may have particular preferences or brought up in a particular tradition where they may find some practices, you know, uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. when, when indigenization is discussed, those 
those concepts and ideas that come to the fore and you often find people responding in particular ways to particular suggestions and musical formats because of that relationship with the past. And now Zoe on indigenization. I mean, I use indigenization as my main theoretical construct in, in my dissertation and then in my book. And so it was a little bit hard. It's like all of a sudden I'm being challenged to rethink this idea. And I think the, the, the problem was really the dichotomized kind of thinking that there are two cultures in contact, the local indigenizing culture, local culture that is taking Christianity and bringing it into their culture and the missionizing culture, whether colonial British American or even earlier in the, in the, um, Indian context of the, the Portuguese from the, from the really late 1400s. Um, and, and one of the problems was really an anthropological problem that, that reflects a kind of shift in the way we've underst- understand anthropological theorizing is this sense of the purity or the singularity um, and, and even cohesiveness of the indigenizing culture, um, of the local culture. And that somehow this thing that's this Western, usually missionizing culture is somehow you know, coming in, perhaps corrupting. Um, and, and what it doesn't allow for is really that what the theory doesn't allow for is that idea of the complexity in the contact, the complexity mm-hmm. of local identity groups and the negotiations that are constantly going on and that are going on then historically. Um, and so the localization becomes again more in- inclusive, and I love the way I, you know, sort of rereading uh, part of the introduction for this podcast. Um, I think it's really Muriel who who coined this as a model, and and it's we're trying to create a model for for this culture context that that is potentially comparative, that accounts mm-hmm. for this interplay between structure, agency, change, continuity within the diverse local music making practices. And so, for example, um, you know, there, there may be some kind of music that is, was once considered foreign and it may still have that kind of foreign resonance, like maybe even in a positive way that, that we're associated with this foreign thing and that gives us a certain identity or a certain value or that there's already a kind of local fusion music that's being used. So, for example, in Indi- Indian context, Bollywood film music is already a kind of a fusion. Um, and that style is being brought into the Protestant church, particularly as what they call light music. And, mm-hmm. But it's very local, even though it has mm-hmm. these outside influences in. And so... So our theory has to allow for all of those varieties of, of types mm-hmm. of musics, um, you know, that people that people are drawing on. We can't exclude what they are drawing on, on what they find meaningful, mm. and and how they how they understand it as meaningful. And now Muriel, where academics always make mistakes because they would like to define what is local for those people but in fact actually we should flip it they guys what do you think is local what do you consider to be a tradition you know and i was really surprised when my lutheran 
you know, mob said, oh, look, you know, Christianity and, and Lutheran hymns, that's our tradition now. I said, oh, okay, yes, well, I suppose after three generations, it probably is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it's asking that question and not making assumptions. Certainly scholars tend to be, uh, you know, tend to go wrong there quite often. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind and to give people the opportunity to speak for themselves. To sum things up, here's Muriel's take on where the book puts us research-wise. I think we all, all three of us kind of envisage this as being a start as much as anything else of a discussion. And some of the things we point out in our conclusionary section is basically to say, look, what we are missing here is, is members from the Orthodox community. We're especially keen to hear more case studies or to engage with people from that area. Uh, we would like to see more practitioners engage with scholars to look at how practice informs research. Uh, on a day-to-day and I'm very pleased that at least some of our audience will be practitioners because certainly as a as an applied researcher I think there's a lot of scope here for practitioners to come on board with some of the theories and some of the background that we have uh, I guess touched upon uh, and to engage with that and to sort of offer us a a deeper insight into how their practice and local communities um, work and how they themselves work and whether they find perhaps some of the theories about reflexivity, which is reflecting on your own practice and how that impacts on your, your worship, really useful. So we'd love to, love to hear more. And I think that would be, I guess, my call to action to our listeners today. Thanks to Monique Ingalls, Muriel schweighausen Heikersberg, and Zoe Sherinian for today's conversation. Show notes for this episode are at musicandthechurch.com slash 33. The show notes include more information about them and their collection, Making Congregational Music Local in Christian Communities Worldwide. You can get in touch by sending me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. This is the last episode of Music and the Church for 2018. I'll be taking a break for the holidays, and I'll be back with fresh episodes in January. I hope you have a peace-filled holiday season.